finally lads the time is upon us the women's world cup is just around the corner and ireland are there for the first time and the 70 million odd irish people around the globe many of them are going to be cheering for the girls in green when they take on australia in sydney this coming thursday around about lunchtime in central europe where i'm based and in the evening down below in australia in sydney in front of a sold out crowd i've been told somewhere between 75 and 82000 right because uh, fifa makes a few allowances takes over a few seats for the tv cameras and for security and that kind of thing but what an occasion it is going to be my name is philip o'connor i am the host the producer the man behind the global gale podcast which comes out pretty much every week for the irish community around the world and you're very welcome if you are listening for the first time right now i make no excuses lads over the next couple of weeks while ireland are playing their group games this podcast is probably going to focus almost solely on women's soccer because i've been covering the sport for years i've been looking forward to this occasion of Ireland's first Women's World Cup for years or their first major tournament for years and what I want to do is provide you with a little bit of content that helps you to enjoy these games more right so I've interviewed people in each of Ireland's uh, opponents okay so people from Australia people from Canada and people from Nigeria and they're going to be Ireland's three World Cup opponents in the group stage. What they're going to tell us about the teams, what we can expect, and give you a little bit of context about uh, what what it is you're about to see, right? And just make it easier and more enjoyable for you to watch the World Cup. Because I fully understand that there's an awful lot of people coming at this from the first time. There's loads of great content out there on uh, the Irish Examiner and the 42.ie, and there'll be some brilliant Irish reporters down there uh, who are doing some great work as well. But I might hope to be there myself, but it didn't work out. So I'm going to do the best I can from my home here in Stockholm. If you want to support the podcast, boys and girls, uh, patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm. Throw in a fiver if you can. Helps me keep the lights on. But it's not that important at the moment and for the next two weeks. What is important is the girls in green, right? So first up, with Australia up in a couple of days' time, we're going to get you ready for that game with two interviews, right? First of all, we're going to talk to Joey Peters, right? Uh, Joey or Joanne Peters is one of the greatest Australians ever to play the game of association football down there one of the pioneers of the game down there and as she says in the interview one of the Matilda's alumni one of the people who put Australian soccer for women on the map down there and she's going to set the scene for us in terms of the history of the women's game in Australia a little bit and what she expects from this and what's happening with those players who did sort of pave the way for those players today and then after that we're going to hear from Isabel Coots right Isabel works for Opta Sports down below in Australia and she's going to give us the, the lowdown around tactics and around personal and really set the scene for this game that's going to happen, right? So each team plays in a group of four. The top two teams go through to the last 16. There's 32 teams in all. Uh, Ireland is one of those teams that's there for the very first time and very much an unknown quantity for Australia. Canada, the Olympic champions, and of course Nigeria, one of the most successful teams, the most successful team in history in African football. And we'll be hearing from a a correspondent from there a little bit later on in the week. Uh, Before we take them on, actually, uh, we'll be hearing from him. But let's set the scene in Australia now. Let's talk to Joe, uh, Joey Peters first, and then you'll hear from Isabel Coots. And oh my God, I can't wait for this whole thing to be kicking off. Joey, tell me, um, we were just saying before I press record there, how your experience of the women's game and the World Cups, all of them that you played in, was a lot different from what we're going to get in Australia. Could you just go back to the first World Cup that you played in for Australia and what that experience was like? Well, I was fortunate enough to play in the 1999 World Cup, which was in the USA, and that was a momentous one uh, where the USA you know, packed out the stadiums uh, similar to hopefully we we will in in this World Cup, but that was when uh, I think women's soccer in the US and women's football just really announced itself on the world stage, and um, it it was amazing. I mean, you had Jennifer J Lo, uh, Jennifer Lopez playing "Let's Get Loud" at the you know the the closing ceremony, and um, you know the US team were just amazing. They're they're still I feel like although it seems like they're getting caught up by the rest of the world now, but they were just miles ahead. So they were leading the way and to be able to experience, you know, the the, the crowds, which I'd never experienced before over there, um, and the level of football for me was just, it was like, okay, wow, this is what a World Cup's all about. Um, 
you know, there weren't many tournaments back then. So, you know, just it was elevated a hundred times to, to what we were used to. We didn't have crowds to play in front of. Um, and so, you know, to go over there in, in 99, it was a, it was a, yeah, very wide, uh, awakening for myself. I was only 20 years old. So, um, you know, for a young player, it was quite overwhelming, but, um, I, 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 yeah, still remember, still have fond memories, even though uh, as a team, we didn't, we didn't win a game. Um, and even in the next world cup, 2003, we still didn't win a game. So it was devastating in that way. Um, but the introduction to to women's football on the rise, especially how the USA did it, was was you know it, it was very inspirational and, and motivating as a young player to think, wow, this is what I want to do. You know, I want to keep doing it. There wasn't you know any money, but uh, you still wanted to be a full time professional <laughs> without the money. And it was just um, it, it it was it was great times back then. As much as we were battling and struggling for promotion um felt like you know the game was still so honest and and young as women's footballers um so i I still really appreciate my place in history and being able to experience that and you mentioned there that you know about promotion and struggling for these kind of things right i talked to pia sundhaga before the world cup in france four years ago and i said pia okay is this a breakthrough for women's football and she said, if I had a fiver for every time somebody told me this was going to be the breakthrough for what I'd be a very rich woman, because you didn't get money back then. You were lucky to play semi-professionally and maybe have a part-time job on the side, or else you lived very much on the sort of, you know, almost a sort of poverty level wages. And um, that has changed over the years. Did that change sort of during your career? Did it get any better in the sort of, let's, let's see now, I think you were about 15 years in the national team, maybe 13, 14 years in the national team. Did it change in that time? Did you feel that you were able to sort of uh, have a better standard of living at that time Joey it was always a struggle look it was always a struggle but I, I do remember my first uh check that I received and and it was fortunate that we got the Sydney Olympics in 2000 because it was um in the lead up to that it was about 97 or 98 um we actually started to get some some money from the government funding and there was a check of $166 for the month. So it was basically $40 a week, which Australian dollars isn't much at all. Um, but it was something, you know, and, and, and yeah, we were grateful for everything we got because you knew that the players beforehand, you know, you, you were grateful that you didn't have to pay to go because you knew the players before you had to pay to play for their country. So, you know, it was like, wow, you know, we're actually getting money. And then uh, by the time I retired in uh, uh, 2009, I was probably the high, one of the highest paid Matildas there on contract. And that was, again, for only 20, 20K. Um, and so, you know, in, in Australia terms and, and back then, it, it, it really wasn't anything to live off. We still had to try and uh, get a part-time job, obviously. And, and for myself, I, I wanted to literally give my whole life to playing. For some reason, it was just one of those things that you were willing to 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 live on the poverty line and go without and live on bread breadcrumbs, so that you could see how you know how far could I go in this game? How good could I get? And so I ended up spent. I was fortunate to have an inheritance from one of my uh, great aunts, but I ended up you know chewing through the money there because I just you know just to be able to live and and be able to dedicate all that time to to being a full uh full-time athlete it was really tough and and we yes things got better and but I'm and I think you know seeing a lot of the teams even at this world cup and I know the Matildas are still starting to fight FIFA and saying look you know we need some equality here guys like come on um, I, I, I just on that, I feel like at some point I'm wondering, I don't think it'll ever happen, but I'm wondering, you know, will the, the men's game be asked to actually forego some of their millions and trillions of dollars just to see some, um, you know, because the women, they're not asking for mansions and Ferraris, you know, they're just looking for, you know, a decent income to give their life to. Um, it is a short career, isn't it, playing? So, you, you, you do need that uh, a little bit of a buffer after you retire as well. And that's all they're, they're after. It's not a, a lot of money. So I'm still glad that, that everyone's taken on the fight because they certainly deserve it. 
Um, but you know, I, I I can't complain with my place in history. I, I'm I'm glad that I got to do what I was able to do. When you look at Sam Kerr now playing for a club side Chelsea, and you know talk of all these games at Stamford Bridge next year, we've seen sold out stadiums in Barcelona, we've seen it at Arsenal. Uh, you know, it's it's something that you probably couldn't have even dreamed of when you were playing. Is there any sense of, Jesus, I wish I was born 20 years later? Or is there any sense of, you know, you missed out a little bit? Because, of course, Sam Kerr, you know, as a, as a commercial property now, she's going to make a lot of money, both through playing the game and also maybe through things she's going to do around the World Cup. Is there any bitterness, Joey, fr- from your generation towards that? Uh, that's a good question because, you, again, you have it both ways. Like, we were... We were always you know mindful that we we're grateful for what we what we had um and you know i'm grateful that i'm i'm not necessarily thr- thrust into the media's um fr- you know front and center of the media i'm not uh, not a person that appreciate <laughs> appreciates that necessarily um you know the pressure that's on them now uh, i i really admire them for that but yeah i mean it's interesting cuz 2009 when i retired that's probably when, yeah, that was when Sam Kerr was, you know, a teenager then and she was just starting. So, you know, there's a little bit of feeling there like, oh, it's one generation, you know, too soon um, to to what's really happening now. And, and yeah, I, I look, again, it's one of those things you, you, you I, I love my career and what I was able to do, you know, go to South America, go to Europe, travel the world. Um but yeah, sometimes you know, you I wish I had a little bit more in the in the bank, or or was able to, um, you know, not just uh, yeah, just feel like you you kind of forgotten now um, because no one really knew about you. And I think um, what what good uh, thing about this World Cup in Australia is that they've actually um, the FA has done really well to start honouring the past Matildas and we're now formally called the Matildas alumni. And so um, they're putting a lot of effort into recognising and promoting the former players. And we've actually, yeah, gotten a bit more airtime. And you feel like, you know, the, the better that the Matildas get, the bigger that the women's game gets, actually we get more respect for what we did as well. So it's not just this generation that's benefiting. We we are getting more valued uh, and recognised and um, congratulated for what we did as well. Yeah, I was in, um, when I was in, I think it actually might have been when uh, Norway played Australia in 2019, I was working with the Norwegian team and Hegerisa was there. And I remember there was like thousands of people in the stadium and very few people recognised her. And I remember thinking of how sad that was because the brilliant player that she was when they won the World Cup in 1995. And like you say, she doesn't have any mansions or Ferraris or that kind of thing. And now she's back as, as coach with Norway at this tournament. So it's good to hear, especially in a place like Australia, that, you know, it does such a great job usually of lifting up its sporting here. Where are you living now, Joey? Are you in one of the cities which is going to be hosting the games? I'm in Newcastle, which is just a couple of hours north from Sydney. So I'll be at all the Sydney games. Um, we were actually hoping to host a couple of games because we've got a great uh, stadium and and it's a wonderful uh, town on the beach and we've got the biggest lake uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, Lake Macquarie. It's a beautiful town. So I'm sorry that uh, we couldn't share it with the world, but um, you know, Sydney's close enough. We we can't complain. We'll, we'll I'll be able to to go there. I'll be there on Thursday. You know, just um, as a fan and and at all the final games too. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's just wonderful how big it is all around Australia. And and FIFA were very careful about how they chose uh, the the cities that got to host the games. Um, but I think it's going to, and even, you know, that sense of having New Zealand as well um, is good to include them as well. That's the first time I've ever heard an Australian sports person say a nice thing about New Zealand. So we'll, <laughs> we'll clip that out and stick it on social media. You know, I wanted to ask you as well, because you mentioned your career there that it took you to South America, right? You played for Santos, which is the club that gave us Pele. I think you were the first Australian sports person ever to play professional soccer in South America, certainly the first woman to do so. But your career also took you to Keith Örebro, which is about two hours from where I'm sitting right now in Sweden, right? What was that like when a club comes into you? Had you ever heard of these people or did they just come with a bag of money and say, look, this is what we got for the season. Take it or leave it. We'd love to have you here. <laughs> look, it's, uh, and I loved hearing Orobro. I still can't pronounce it properly. Can you say it again for me? Orobro. Orobro. There you Orobro. go. <laughs> I'm so sorry. 
it was a wonderful time in, in Sweden. It wasn't long enough. It, it, it was a time when uh, the national team was more like your club team. It was mm. like, okay, you play for the Matildas and then oh, you, if you can go overseas and play a bit over there. And so, um, and, and it's kind of, it was almost like who you knew as well. So being in the national team, um, yeah, I was able to to know, uh, actually, Pia Sundhager was the was the head coach at the time, and um, and uh, Christine Lilly, who was a, a US legend, um, she was playing in that team as well. And they just happened to, it was like a friend of a friend, kind of. She was looking for a midfielder to replace Christine Lilly, and I was like, I don't know if I can rep- anyone could replace Christine Lilly, but I'll give it a go. Um, and yeah, I was really fortunate to be able to to play over there for a little while and it was just it was a completely different world to me um you know in Sweden there as opposed to down under in Australia you know I was I was set up in this little apartment by myself and I'd never lived by myself before there's all these little apartments but and but so friendly and welcoming it was probably it was it probably wasn't a good thing with how um good Swedes are with their English because it meant I, I couldn't learn as much uh Swedish as I would have liked to but um, but yeah, in Bra- so in Brazil, no one spoke English. So um, after three months there, um, living amongst the girls, where only yeah, well, probably one or two spoke a little bit. So we'd we'd kind of translate, and um, you know that was that was amazing that that time. I mean, it you could say I was the first player to play professionally, but like I said before, where we didn't earn much money at all they were they were giving their lives uh to to play the game you know without much food or uh even the accommodation we stayed in um you know it was very humble and but but that was all part of the experience as well because it just elevated how much they loved football and how good they were as people um and and that's why yeah I just loved doing what I was doing you know playing uh, traveling the world and so grateful to be able to just uh, experience cultures and and all these wonderful people and you know I'm still friends with a lot of them today um and I'm hoping that yeah I'll I'll might see a glimpse of them uh, I know Marta's still playing for Brazil and uh, managed to play against her and uh, even Formiga who was who she, oh, I was arguably should be in the team but Pia Sundag wouldn't wouldn't have her so <laughs> you know what Pia's um, like, you know, once Pia has her mindset on something, there's no change in it, you know? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But no, it's it's nice still to have those connections and, and be able to connect with people in the game. I've just had so many great experiences through this through this little funny game, uh, chasing this little white ball. <laughs> we often say that the women's game and the men's game are like it's okay the rules might be the same but they're two different sports Joey in terms of culture right in terms of this culture of inclusivity that's around the women's game what what I fear most now is that we're going to lose what you talked about right you went out there for the love of the game for you know the, the challenge of, of learning Portuguese or Brazilian Portuguese or playing in Sweden that kind of thing it's becoming more and more and more about the money we saw that Pernilla Harder and Magda Eriksson have gone to Bayern Munich now obviously they're going to get well paid and the two of them were able to go there together uh, do you worry about that because it, it's given you so much and it sounds glib to say it right but you weren't made financially rich by the game but you were enriched in other ways for having all these experiences that you're telling me about today do you worry that you know the, the women's game is basically going to become a copy of the men's game where people get paid ridiculous amounts of money at the top it, it's a it's a great question phil and it's actually something that I, I think about often not just in uh not just in the women's game but sport in general you know how professionalized and and monetized and commercialized you know it's it's all getting uh it's quite sad because i do feel like we're just uh losing that pure love of the game i mean even at a kids level you know it's all about can they be the next matilda you know and so it becomes about can you make that team you have to win you have to and then ah it starts being all too crazy too young and and yeah from my experience uh, and I actually remember when I went to to play professionally in the USA, it was one of the earliest um, pro leagues there, the, the WUSA they called it, and I played for New York Power. And I remember that being the first professional, it was very, yeah, a, a young professional league. And so going there for the first time under contract, you 
and going into the change room, there was a different feeling. It wasn't like you were amongst friends and you're all there together for the love of the game. All of a sudden it was you're there for your own contract and you have to try and play better than the person next to you to win that spot on the team. Now, I think um, that was an interesting feeling for me. I, I think they they deal with it very well these days. They're able to do both. From what I can see from the Matildas, there's still that they still try and keep that sense of family and friends um, and fun and being themselves, which I think is is crucial for what you're saying. Because um, yeah, that's what I thought. Maybe the men's money can come down a little bit because I would hate to see you know the uh, the women's came kind of blow out in terms of you know millions of dollars. Like I said, make sure that the players are well looked after. But at some point, you know. We're, I feel like we're getting too much money and too much focus on on the dollar as opposed to the love of the game. So it is a it's it's an important conversation that we've got to keep having. Phil, mm. I think that goes for the men's game as well because I was talking to um, an old Irish legend, Liam Brady, one time, and he was saying that if there was one thing he could change, it was like don't give them all the money straight away because you give them money and the head just swells instantly and they start to think that they are somebody, you know. Um, just one of the questions I had for you, and you mentioned it earlier on the conversation, the first two World Cups, the Australian side struggled, right? Uh, the, your first two World Cups, I mean, in 1999 and 2003. We now have a situation, Joey, where we have 32 nations in it. Personally, I feel I didn't get anything out of Thailand getting battered by the USA in the last World Cup. I thought, you know, you could have blown up that game after 30 minutes. Do you think that that's going to damage the product, in inverted commas? If we see the Philippines or Haiti or indeed Ireland, you know, all these World Cup debutants coming there and struggling to match a Germany, a Canada, a United States who have a long, long history in this game. Is that going to devalue what we're seeing on the screens? Or do you believe that the experience you had in 99, 2003 set you up for the team that's now going to host the World Cup? Yeah, exactly, Phil. I think, uh, you know, immediate in, in when you look at immediate results, you could go, oh, you know, that's not that's not good. But I think for for the long-term development of the game, it's a good step that we get more teams in there getting more experienced at this level. And, you know, even for someone like Ireland, I can't believe this is their first World Cup. I mean, uh, especially for European teams, you can there's so much respect for for Europe and, and, and they deserve more places um, in there. But, you know, for, for the developing nations, it, it is important that they're there, even if their results don't, don't uh, bode well for them. Uh, it, the experience is, is so much more valuable and it will continue to propel the women's game um, forward even further. So I, I'm glad that they've done it. And, it. and and it also brings, a you know, the right integrity to the tournament as well, that it is a full 32 teams. I remember when we played um, in, in 2007, we went uh, from the group stage straight into the quarterfinals. I mean, it was nice to say, like, oh, we made the quarterfinals, you know, but you just feel like, you know, oh, there's just something missing there. So I think for the development of the women's game, again, to be put on the same uh, level as the men um, and just to experience the full integrity of, of a tournament, to be able to go round to 16 and, and then the quarterfinals, I think it, 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 again, just adds so much value to it and, and, um, you know, I'm glad that they've done it as soon as as soon as possible. Yeah, that that idea of having the round of 16 is kind of vital, you know, because to get to play in a knockout game like that because it changes, you know, the group games are entirely different to the, the knockout games. And to have had that experience, I was at the game when Australia lost on penalties to Norway and France a few years ago. I've never seen girls so angry afterwards because they came so close to putting Norway out who are sort of a traditional superpower. Joey, I'm very conscious of your time and I'm very grateful to you for giving it to me, but I just want to ask you one last question, right? Thursday, it's going to be Thursday evening in Sydney. You're going to stand there as a person who played over a hundred times for her country. I think you scored something like 28 goals in that several world cups you've done everything that you possibly could to push the cause of australian soccer what's it going to feel like for you to stand there and and watch your team and, and to hear the national anthem as they take on ireland in the opening game are you prepared for that emotionally or have you any idea what's going to happen it just gave me goosebumps then phil i i, I always thought that i was going to be ready for it just like I'll, I'll every now and then I'll be walking around my family will be get really scared because I'm like I'll just shout out this is really happening you know and it's <laughs> like come on Tilda's come on we got this like I'll just every now and then just burst out into in, in this expression of like you say emotion and 
Um, even now, even when you were saying that, I feel like I, I, I'm I'm not going to be able to keep my eyes dry because, um, yeah, I I remember my last game for for the Matildas and uh, they didn't we didn't even get through the national anthem and I was I was a mess. I was like bawling my eyes out just the emotion uh, that I feel for for this game and and like you say where where it's been able to come to and that we we didn't even imagine that we would be able to host a World Cup. I mean, no one. Ca- no one cared about Australian football. I didn't think that, you know, Australia even played football really or we didn't even call it football. We were the old soccer. So uh, it wasn't it wasn't in my dreams that we would host um, and to certainly be now, you know, see our Matildas in the best, best uh, for, form of their lives um, and even perhaps being contenders. If we can, if we can get one past the, uh, the Irish, we'll be on our way. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, it'll be electric. It'll be, yeah, it'll be very emotional because we're actually having an event before the game as well with all the Matildas alumni. So there'll be all the post uh, past players there. And uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be just that once in a lifetime event that you're going to cherish. Um, and I'm just going to really make sure I meditate beforehand so that I can be in the moment soak it all up because yeah it's it's just going to be so special i can't wait <laughs> we're going to just one last thing we're going to need a prediction from you right now remember it's mostly but you know part of the 70 million irish diaspora around the globe are going to be listening to this but you don't have to say anything nice about ireland if you don't want to how do you expect the game to go joey oh look i was thinking about the irish because they they put one over us uh, last time we meet so there'll definitely be some some huge respect i think from our team and and the way you guys play you'll be hard to break down and so um you know i i think if if we can get one past you then i think we'll get a few but um if i could say that but but yeah again full respect to to you guys in your first world cup um Oh, look, I, I just can't go past their, our Matildas and, and how much form and flair that they're showing at the moment. So, sorry, maybe you're going to go down by at least uh, three or four. Oh, Lordy, she's going all in. Studs up on that. That wasn't what you were like <laughs> as a player at all. I'm surprised at you. Joey, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I hope whatever happens that you get the credit and the rest of the Matildas alumni get the credit you deserve before and during and after this game and forevermore because you've made wonderful sacrifices for what we're about to see. And for that, every women's football fan in the world is very grateful. And hopefully we'll talk to you again maybe before the end of the tournament. But for now, Joey, thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, pe- uh- Phil, thank you so much. It means a lot. Uh, yeah, it just means so much. And I do wish you guys all the best of luck. I don't think we'll get that many past you. But, yeah, it'll be a really tight game. And um, I would certainly hope, would love to talk to you guys again. Love the Irish and uh, all the best for your tournament as well. Thank you so much. Devana for Australia. Gielnik. Good ball there. Excellent header, 1-0. What a fantastic header by Sam Kerr to put Australia in front. Isabel, we're moments, hours maybe away from the kickoff in Australia. What's the general atmosphere like in the build-up to the tournament? Uh, Has it been, you know, months of sort of anticipation or is it only just now that people are realising that the tournament has taken place in Australia? I think it's a bit of both. The diehards have obviously been watching WSL and watching that season end and Champions League and things like that and watching some of our stars, but... For the, the general public that are maybe, you know, not so embedded in football culture here, um, everyone's kind of ticking over and getting online and realizing what's happening. And I think we saw that with that uh, record-breaking crowd, the 50,629 in Melbourne on Friday. So, um, and especially being a world number five, I mean, that makes headlines anywhere in Australia. So, yeah, everyone's kind of fully realizing that we're, we're not far away. Where is women's soccer in Australia? Because obviously Australia is almost as mad as Ireland when it comes to sport, if not madder. But where is women's sport? Is it generally accepted? Is it taken seriously? Or will you still get sort of WhatsApp memes flying around the place taking the piss out of this? Uh, a bit of both. Um, I mean, obviously the the women's football is just um, in Australia is just uh, kind of uh, found its legs. We're finally getting a full home and away season um, in our professional league. And then um, obviously with stars like Sam Kerr and Caitlin Ford and, and Steph Catley and Alana Kennedy playing at these huge clubs. And recently with um, 
Hayley Rasso. It's been uh, obviously getting more more attention. But, yeah, women women's sports still got a way to go in Australia generally. Um, I'm sure there's, unfortunately, some of those WhatsApp memes uh, flying around. But um, thankfully, yeah, the world, all the people in Australia just seem to really be getting behind this and this team. In terms of ticket sales, one of the things that uh, has happened before is that like, when the home team plays, obviously there's going to be like 80-odd thousand people there to see when Australia play Ireland. But, you know, when Norway play the Philippines and New Zealand or that kind of thing, you kind of wonder how many people are going to turn out to see that. Do you expect casual fans in Australia and New Zealand to go, look, at this is the World Cup, this is historic, I'm going to go anywhere. The t- anyway, the tickets are, are sort of reasonably available. Or is it going to be tough to fill some of those games? I think in New Zealand it's going to be tough just because of the population there and how rugby um, union, rugby league strong they are. Uh and also they don't really have a national league, so they only have Wellington Phoenix. But in Australia, yeah, obviously people are looking to do and feel like they can go to a World Cup. I think we'll see those ticket um, sales kind of spike once the tournament kicks off that everyone kind of realises that it's happening. I think a lot of Australians and, and people around the world these days just live day to day. So I reckon we're going to see some pretty good numbers, especially with those games like Haiti in England. Um, I mean, Haiti's first tournament, England off the Euros with their stars, even though they're missing a few. There's just... Um, a buzz around some of those games, especially with how multicultural Australia's um, population is. It would help us the likes of Greece and et cetera were involved because, you know, you would have uh, millions of people in Melbourne watching those games. And if you look at the team, Isabel, obviously you mentioned some of the big names there, Caitlin Ford, Sam Kerr, somebody that everybody knows. How do they play? What kind of football do they play? Are they a counter-attacking team? Are they a possession team? Are they an exciting team to watch? Yeah, well, we, over these last kind of period, once they announced the World Cup and once Tony Gustafsson took over, there's been a bit of a um, a shift. Obviously, they needed to build depth because we had a bit of a huge, a bit of a turnover. But with those players um, on Friday, we saw it in full full display. Um, Ireland better be ready for really, really fast counter-attacking play. Um, not so much possession. We do like to hold that, but we really do like to... Um, utilize the the speed of our forward line which includes the the Sam Kerr's and the Caelan Fords and um Courtney Vine more recently um and those sorts of players just the counter-attack on Friday was absolutely insane they kind of went from like a a four two one three or um set up to like a two four four they just the fullbacks went as well early Carpenter and Steph Catley down the the lines it was insane so that counter-attack is going to push us through this tournament i think it sounds fascinating now the only thing about ireland is that you know it's going to be hard because ireland are not going to give them those opportunities to counterattack. Ireland are going to sit with their five at the back do australia have a playmaker who can break a team down do they have a sort of you know a, a midfield general who can get in there and start to try to pick them apart and find spaces maybe where others wouldn't find them yeah definitely i think we've got kind of two in that field that have kind of pushed into that area more recently with Katrina Gori and Kara Killing Cross. Um, Kara's been killing it in Sweden um, and was kind of more a traditional six would hold, um, but has now been, you know, on that front foot, creating that space, finding finding those areas. Um, and I think even with five, just on Friday, Courtney Vine just ran around someone and like Wendy Renard just ran around her and was like, oh, cool. Um, I'm around one of the best defenders in the world. So I think even if they park the bus against us, uh, if Ireland park the bus, it'll it'll still be hard um, just because of how long these players have been playing together. Like Caelan Ford and Sam Kerr have been, you know, teammates of the national team since they started, which is this like 16 year old. So over 10 years. So um, yeah, it's going to be uh, interesting to see how they do break down a, a back five though. Um, I was speaking to a friend from Canada last night and we were talking about how Canada are one of these really stubborn teams who don't score a whole lot of goals but don't concede a whole lot of goals. How is Australia looking at this group? Like, obviously, you think you're going to win against Ireland on Thursday, right? Uh, but will they want to win all three games? Will they be happy to win their first two games and then put out like a B team against Canada and spare the legs for later on in the tournament? How do you think the team is looking at that? I think... Everything goes into Ireland. If we like screw it against Ireland and come away with a draw, like that'll change the way we have to approach this tournament, obviously, because then, you know, a few results from Ireland as well, and we're not going through the finals. So I think if we get those three points. It's kind of going to be, um, we can sit back a little bit. And the telling part is that Australia based themselves 
um, in Brisbane. Um, and the way that the draw works is that if um, the Group B runner-up will play um, the England group winner, which is probably going to be England, um, in Brisbane. So the decisions they made to kind of base themselves in Brisbane almost makes you kind of think that they are predicting themselves to finish second um, in this group. So I think anything that gets us through the finals would be great. First is obviously great, but realistically second. Um, and then obviously from there, it's just trying to, with that Canada game, Canada game as well, it's um, interesting because we do have a, a little some little niggles here and there. So, um, and I know a lot of teams do, but yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what they do. I don't know if they'll pull, pull throw them down and, and and try and get everything in three points out of Canada, or if they'll hold back and have a bit of a, a you know larger tournament lens on that game. Would there be a preference among Australian fans and players of playing sort of England or Denmark, or do they not care that you know might be the European Championships straight after the group stage? I think if you'd be watching women's football, you would just be praying for Denmark. Um, I think we, it's a, <laughs> I think we go great against England, and it's always like a you know that Aussie English rivalry is huge. But um, realistically, just the way that Serena Beekman coaches that team and and you know runs her team during a tournament and her stats in a tournament. I don't think you want to be facing that. I don't think anyone would say, "Please give me one of the hardest teams." It'd be like facing the U.S. I know they're on the opposite side of the the, the um, schedule, but it'd be like facing the U.S. straight up. You just think, you know, when they see getting the semifinal, why are we facing them right now? So hopefully in the quarters or semis, but not not in the not in the round of sixteen. I was working with the Norwegian team last year when uh, Miss Wigman put a team together that beat them eight 0 and just comprehensively destroyed them. There was nothing Norway could do, and it was probably the longest night of my life doing this. And um, what do Australia know about Ireland? Obviously, there's a huge Irish community there. Are they very visible to you in Australia? And uh, what do Australians think of the Irish team? Would they know players outside of Katie McCabe and Denise O'Sullivan? Realistically, I don't think so. Unless, again, you're like a diehard football um, fanatic, you wouldn't really know. Um, especially, and I think the Katie McCabe thing is just obviously because she plays the two Aussies at Arsenal. Um, and she's such a character at Arsenal. Um I mean, I follow the Twitter page that tracks her yellow cars in the WSL. Um, it's a big so, page on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a huge, a huge following. So I think, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of fanatics would kind of know maybe those two just because of uh, their platform and and Denise just the experience. But yeah, I don't know if um, you know every Australian that you'd run into in a pub would kind of know too much else besides that. Um, about the Irish community that lives over there, it feels like half of Ireland has moved to Australia in the last 20 years. Um, are they visible as people in Australia? We joked about the Greek Australians a little bit earlier on there. Are, are the Irish threatening their status as the major immigrant group in Australia these days? Well, I don't think so. I really don't think so. I mean, there's pubs everywhere, but there's, you know, it's Australia, there's pubs everywhere. Um, so I think the thing that surprised me, though, was um, when the Irish team arrived, and landed and there was like that group welcoming them um i think the irish players were kind of caught off guard as much as um i was they you know were just like oh you you know we're not even in our our base uh, our base location um it's not even the first match i think they'll expect it the to see the colors in the crowd but yeah i think uh australians a lot of them have a connection to islands you know one way or another if they're not um you know full-blown uh irish so it holds a little bit in the heart there. So I think there'll be a lot of people watching, but the fact you're, you're facing Australia it probably doesn't help for those people that are maybe on the fence and have, you know, a half half jersey of, England, uh, of Ireland and, and Australia. I hate those people. Those half and half jerseys are an absolute, they should be fired at the bin the whole lot of them. Um, you mentioned there, like, you know, there's going to be a lot of colour in the arena now. 80 odd thousand, over 80,000 tickets sold for this game, right? Do Australians realise how many Irish people have tickets and how it's not really going to look strictly like a home game where sort of 10% is green and white and the rest is gold and green? Yeah, yeah. Um, just on that, I, I just want to point out that um, FIFA released the like capacity because you know how they like, shut areas down. I think it's more looking like it's going to be 75, just over 70 for the crowd. But um, yeah, I think it kind of hit uh, some of the Matildas players recently that there was a huge Irish um, population in Sydney and just in Australia in general and that 
there'll be, you know, a lot of green and gold, but there will also be a lot of um, the Irish colours and Irish flags. So, uh, but I don't know if, again, the everyday everyday Aussie would kind of know that until until this happens because Irish people out here um, get behind their, you know, sporting teams um, far and away from even the motherland. So it's going to be great to see that on display in Australia for a World Cup opener. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot now. We're going to have to predict this group, right? Australia face Ireland in the first game. In your heart of hearts, what do you expect to happen? What do you expect the result to be there? I reckon it could go like 3-1. Australia will win. And I reckon at like one point it'll be like 1-1. Like it'll be an equaliser and then Australia will like settle in and and, and get the nerves done and, and score two more, hopefully. Um, that's what I'm predicting for Friday. What about you? Um, I, I don't know. I like I hate making predictions, but I do think it's going to be tougher than a lot of people in Australia think. I mean, a, a draw for Ireland in their first World Cup would be the biggest thing that ever happened. Uh, I, mean, I hate to reflect on the men's side, but you know when they've gone to these major tournaments for the first time, they've had brilliant results because people have underestimated them. And I don't think that Australia are going to do that. So, like you know, obviously as a fan, you'd be hoping for a draw. As a journalist, you've got to say that Australia would probably win that game, right? So, Australia, three points, top of the table. Uh, they're going up against Nigeria next. The best team in Africa, men or women, ever, right? What do you expect from them? Because, um, again, I remember being at the 2019 World Cup in Norway and thinking that they were individually, they're absolutely brilliant. Um, organisationally, maybe not so much at times. You know, they got caught out a couple of times to set pieces and that kind of thing. Is that what Australia are going to be looking at and looking at another three points against Nigeria? Or do you expect Nigeria to be a tougher nut to crack? I think what you were saying about how Ireland only has an influence and is underestimated, I think that'll kind of be the the, the theme for Nigeria. Um, obviously, some people dubbed it the group of death, but there's a reason for that because Nigeria and Nigeria are so strong. Um, and as well, you've got to take into consideration just like footage available and things like that. I'm sure, you know, the Matilda's technical team have and the whole monopoly of access to some footage, but thinking about the Irish team and, and games we've seen them play versus Nigeria, the the access to what these girls are doing in club and things like that might not be as great. And they always, I guess, lean into the underdog tag for these tournaments. So I can't wait to see what they do. I'm predicting probably, I reckon we'll leak a goal. <laughs> I'm going to say we might underestimate that and, and, and leak a goal and it might be, yeah, another 3-1 situation or, or even 3-2. Just because I think about that our counter-attack is our strong suit and if they then come back at us with that counter attack um and we haven't transitioned properly i really do think we, we could leak some goals in that area if we're not fully switched on for 90. They have some tremendous attacking players in Nigeria. They've got some tremendous young players coming through as well. And that's one of those games that, you know, I'm looking at that going, oh, that could be a World Cup classic right there between these two teams. Right, we'll give you this one, Isabel. We'll give you this one as well. Six points, top of the group, Olympic champions Canada. Like you say, they don't score many goals, but they don't concede many either. If you were coached in the Matildas, what would you want out of that game? Would you just want to survive a boring nil-nil draw that everybody puts the kettle on at halftime and falls asleep on the couch? Would that do you? Or are you going balls out to win that one again? Uh, I mean, the competitiveness, in, the competitiveness in me wants me to say that we're going to go, you know, balls out, guns are blazing, let's get those three points. But looking at the other group and who we could face, and if it's out of England or Denmark, I might be saying, you know what, let's just park these paths. Let's just, you know, come away with a draw or, or something that's going to sit us in second. It could be. Uh, a good, um, I guess, uh, tactical decision to, to accidentally not win that game. Um, but in terms of, uh, I know, prior to World Cup, I know that the Matildas would never, you know, go into a game with that mentality. But as a coach, I mean, you'd have to be considering it. Just, you know, tactics are everything these days. And if it means the difference between Denmark and uh, England, I know which, which way I would be tactically leaning. I think this is is this Denmark's first World Cup since two thousand nine. So it's been a long time since they've been on this stage. Mm. And and Pernilla Harder, I don't know if she's ever played a World Cup. I don't think she has. You know, so I'm just kind of it's hard to know which Denmark is going to show up. You know, it could be you know the the brilliant team that plays that fantastic four three three business, and then they could just just show up flat as well. You know. Um. After that, uh, we're not going to call it a lottery. What is Australia going to need to do? 
to win this thing? What, what will have to go right for them? Is Sam Kerr going to need to score 9, 10 goals? Are they going to just have to stay fit? Are they going to have to use that home advantage? What will be the elements of a successful World Cup for Australia, do you think? I think looking at the blueprint that England used in the Euros um, last June or, or July was um, everyone needs to be f- fit and firing. So it's trying to have as many of that 23, you know, ready to go. And, and also I think that consistency. So while, you know, if we do want to park the bus against Canada, you still want to have that consistency in the starting 11 to make sure that um, the girls know what's going and there's just that fluidity between players and, you know, just reading each other's games and getting that chemistry going. Um but realistically, what they're going to have to do is come out like they did against France and really kind of not sit back. I think that's been something that's cost Australia on the on the big stage over the years is kind of that, oh, we're here now and we're preparing for this moment um, and they kind of maybe get a bit overwhelmed and, and not think that they're going to even be able to, you know, win that match or, or overcome this opponent. So I think what we saw and that mindset has changed. We saw a change against Sweden when we beat them in November last year saw it against France on Friday. So hopefully that mentality mindset is just, you know, come out with our guns blazing and that counterattacking and just go for it. Because, yeah, previous um, tournaments we have sat back a bit and that's what kind of cost us that little hesitation. It just occurred to me, I think, that um, uh, didn't Australia lose to Norway on penalties in 2019? Mm, yes, it sounds correct. We did. We had a horrible penalty loss. Penalty loss. It was. It was. It was pretty. I remember the, the Australian girls were so angry afterwards about how they, they felt they left that one on the table, and Norway being, you know, maybe not what they were, but they're still one of the sort of the traditional superpowers. Is there many players left from the twenty nineteen squad, Isabel, that, that would remember that that would be using that as sort of as fuel for this upcoming campaign? Yeah, definitely. There's only seven de- debutants. Um, so there's a few that didn't take to the field during the last one. and um, But, uh, yeah, the seven that are going to their first tournament. So seven out of the, the 23 haven't experienced it, but I'm sure they're at home watching it. So the ones that were there and then um, not to name names, but there definitely were some players that were part of that that missed a penalty, which obviously is, you know, um, I'm sure uh, a hard a hard thing to swallow at a World Cup. So. They'll definitely be using that pain. And then even more recently, looking at the Asian Cup, when we we bowed out way earlier than we predicted, no one saw that coming. Um, I think those two pains combined um, and then how close we came in Tokyo, you know, to bronze um, is definitely going to fuel, fuel these guys going into this tournament. In five weeks' time, if I talk to you, when this tournament is done and dusted and you finally breathe out after working for, you know, 100 days in a row, what would represent success for the women's game in Australia? What would be a successful World Cup for the nation, both as a team, but also as fans and as a sport to develop going forward? Great question. I think the legacy part is the part that obviously is going to be measured for, you know, decades to come and, and what it did for the game. I think, um, you know, FA is doing their part, football Australia, sorry, are doing their part um, in that off the field. So I think on the field, looking at Matilda's, We've just got to make, they've at least got to make it out of the group stage. And then if we go down in like a, you know, really hard, hard, like one nil loss or penalties or extra time, I think Australians could forgive them. Um, but realistically, you'd be hoping for at least a, a, a quarterfinal run um, on the pitch. And then in terms of crowds, I know we're only going to see it. And I think that's only going to get bigger and better and, and kind of encourage those Aussies to make sure they get around those other teams that you were kind of talking about that, you know, maybe um, are in some or are very far from home and, you know, maybe it's their first World Cup and un- unexpected to make any uh, a big dent, I guess, in the competition maybe would be the, the word. So hopefully we look back in five weeks and um, after the tournament it's just packed crowds, everyone's talking football, everyone's talking Matildas, Everybody's talking about some of those Aussies aside from Sam Kerr and Caitlin Ford and um, Steph Catley and, you know, the big WSL stars, just some of those other names. I think they're really going to um, earn themselves, a, you know, a spot in history, in Australian history and in football history as well. Where can people follow your wonderful work as this tournament kicks off now on Thursday? Uh, anywhere on optusport.com.au um, got an app but obviously online and, and then on Twitter as well at Isabel Coots um, 
yeah, anything there? Otherwise, just search for Matildas. I'm sure I'll come up eventually if you get a few keys. Front row centre. It's, well, it's been absolutely fascinating to get your insight into this. I want to wish you every success with the tournament and I can't wait to see what happens. And uh, especially with Australia, because now we have the receipts, right? So any slip up against Ireland, and believe you and me, we'll be back to you. But thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Perfect. Thanks so much for having me and can't wait for that opening match. There you go. That was the wonderful Isabel Coots there from Optasport in Australia telling us about what we can expect from the opening game and indeed the whole group stage and everything that's going on there. And before that, Joanne Joey Peters telling us about her career in the Matildas and really setting the scene for what women's soccer is like in Australia. Uh, it's going to be a very exciting month ahead. Uh, there's a whole lot to come. I'm going to be talking to Harji Johal. I've actually spoken to her already uh, from Canada just before she left to go there. That's a key key game for Ireland against the Olympic champions and then we will have Samuel Ahmadou uh, who I've also spoken to about Nigeria and set the scene for their tournament as well so what I'll do is rather than bring you those conversations straight away we'll wait until the Australia game is out of the way and bring you those conversations about Nigeria and Canada uh, just ahead of those games now obviously things will have changed just a little bit in the meantime they will have played each other and we will know the lie of the land of the group so we won't cover that in those conversations but they will give you an insight much as we've got here from Isabel and from Joey Peters. Hope you enjoyed what you heard. Um, do me a favour, right? Even if you can't, go to patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm and pay a few quid. That's grand. These podcasts will always be free. I remember what it's like to have been working abroad, you know, 30 years ago when I was working in Greece. 32 years ago now. Holy smokes, I'm getting old and not have any money. And the same thing when I was starting out here in Sweden. So the money isn't the important thing. But please share the podcast, right? Please give the shine to people like Joey and to people like Isabel and Samuel and Harji Johal and spread their work and spread this work as well. And basically help more people to enjoy uh, the content that's going to be coming around the Women's World Cup now. You know, give them the context to get on with it and to enjoy it and to understand the great achievement that it is for Ireland to be there. My name is Philip O'Connor. I will be annoying you again and I'll also be doing some Twitter spaces after the Irish game. So follow me on Twitter at Philip O'Connor and uh, we will react instantaneously to what happens on the field when Ireland take on Australia and Canada and Nigeria at the Women's World Cup. Look at I shall leave it there. Enjoy it. Enjoy the content and I'll be talking to you all again soon. Look after yourselves. Look after one another. Good luck.